for Pacifica Radio, April 24th, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director of Antiwar.com and author of the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You'll find my full interview archive, 5,700 of them now, going back to 2003, uh, right around this time, 19 years ago, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. All right, introducing this week's guest, it's William M. Arkin from Newsweek magazine. Welcome back to the show, William. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on again, Scott. Uh, very happy to have you here. And frankly, like I feel very lucky to have been able to read all of your great coverage of the war in Ukraine going back over these past few weeks here. It's all at Newsweek.com. I just want to start, I guess, if we could, could you give us, please, an overview of how many people have been displaced, how many people have been killed, civilian and military and that kind of thing? Well, if I knew any of the answers to that question, Scott, I could give you an overview. You know, we do know that 25% or so of the population in the East has been displaced by this war. And we do know that uh, some three to four million people have left Ukraine altogether and are now finding shelter in Eastern Europe mostly. But overall, do we know how many civilians have actually died? Do we know how many uh, soldiers have actually died? I think the answer is still no. I can give you some sense of the of the magnitude of the war. Mm -hmm. And that is that uh, we are talking about two large armies facing each other on the ground uh, with tremendous reserves on the part of the Ukrainians, uh, police, National Guard, territorial defenses, civilian volunteers, foreign mercenaries. They're all engaged in this war. I think the level of casualties amongst the soldiers has been higher than we probably have been told. That is that we're talking about probably uh, somewhere in the area of 30 to 40,000 soldier deaths and, and, and severe injuries. And the level of civilian casualties, though the UN continues to doggedly say that you know only uh, 2,500 civilians have died, the truth of the matter is that once the war settles and we see what's happened in Mariupol in the south and we see what's happened in the other cities on the front lines that have been basically fighting for the last two months, and I'm talking about here the entire front line from Kharkiv in the north all the way through uh, Luhansk and Donbass, uh, uh, Donetsk provinces that are making up the Donbass and then the offensive of the Russians from Crimea up north uh, to try to take the entire southern half of, uh, of Ukraine, we're probably talking about somewhere in the area of 20,000 or so civilian deaths, uh, which is about, uh, at this point, maybe 10 times more than what the UN is accounting for. And what do you think about Russian military casualties in the war ballpark? Uh, so I, I think the answer is that we can tell from Ukrainian numbers that about 20,000 or so Russian soldiers have been killed. Uh, that doesn't seem to be an in inconceivable number to me. 
We have to remember how many Russian troops are actually on the ground and what they're actually doing and how many are actually at the front lines. I know that those arrows and those shaded areas on maps gives us a very distorted view of just how much progress Russia has made because we are talking about maybe a mile or so that they can move in a couple of days. And so we have these sweeping arrows that give a very false picture of the progress of the war. But I would guess that the 20,000 number is probably right. So that means that the Russians have lost somewhere close to 20% of their starting forces. And though new troops are being sent in and have been sent in from the east, the truth of the matter is that those troops have never operated in combat. They weren't really prepared to go to war. Uh, they're not fully integrated into the Russian forces that are already there. And most importantly, the Russians have demonstrated that they're not really able to manage large-scale operations. They're okay at the battalion level, that's a thousand men or so, but beyond that, they haven't really been able to pull all of those pieces together. The logistical supply lines behind the Russian forces are still broken. Uh, the ability to move fuel, ammunition, and even food to the frontline troops is still a mess. Uh, the Russians haven't particularly done uh, very well in their so-called new offensive that began on April 18th. But here's the truth about the war, Scott. The Russians lost in the north. However they want to play it, they were not able to take Kiev and they were not able to take Chernihiv and they withdrew their forces and we should see it as a Ukrainian victory over the Russians rather than what everybody was reporting, which was, oh my God, the Russian forces are moving from the north to the south. That's a monumental task and these forces were badly beaten and badly damaged and they will need weeks if not months to recuperate and reorganize themselves to be a meaningful fighting force. So almost everything in the South is really the forces that the Russians began with and those forces that they brought in from Russia itself, which are not really combat ready. So I look at the war and I say, well, wait a minute, they lost in the North and in the South, other than their uh, movement through uh, much of Kherson and Zaporizhia, which are the two provinces where uh, that are north of Mariupol, they haven't really managed to take much more territory. In fact, in, in Luhansk, that's the northern part of Donbass, uh, they started the war controlling about 60% uh, of the territory of Luhansk. And now, as of today, they control about 80% of that territory. So they've gained another 20%. But they still don't even control these Russian-dominated uh, areas of Luhansk and, and, and Donetsk provinces, they have not been able to make the progress that they've wanted to make on the ground. And the Ukrainians, give them credit, have mounted an, a, a spectacular territorial defense. Hmm. You know, just from looking at the last 20 years of America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I know it is different. As you said, these are real state armies, not, you know, uh, one power versus an insurgency and everything. It took us 20 years to lose 7,000 guys. So when you say the Russians seem to have lost 20,000, sounds like there must have been at least one big set-piece battle where they got completely wiped out or something, no? Well, I don't think it's one battle. I mean, the Russians have been operating along a very broad front. 
So let's say even in the towns north of Kiev, like Bucha, that we've heard so much about because of the massacre of civilians there, the truth is that that was uh, five battalion tactical groups on the part of Russia. So that's about 5,000 men fighting against an equivalent Ukrainian force. Why Bucha looks so horrible? Why Irpin and Hostomel and all of these other cities look so horrible now that we've seen after the Russian withdrawal is that the Russians have largely been relegated to operating on the main roads because they have not been able to pull off off-road operations And well, when you operate on the main roads, what do you do? You go through all the towns and the villages. And so that's where the fighting has actually taken place. And that's exactly what's going on in the South as well. So that's why you both see a large number of civilian casualties from people who were not able to evacuate from those towns. But also at the same time, it sets sort of the phenomena of what separates the Ukraine war from other wars. When the United States attacked Iraq in 2003, the army swept through the desert to make their way to Baghdad. In this particular case, the Russians have almost exclusively operated on highways, roads, and, 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 and small roads, even dirt roads. And so they have been going through these towns and villages as part of their offensive. And so that's where the fighting has ended up taking place. Mm. All right. Now, on the narrative overall, that they were definitely on their way to try to achieve a regime change in Kiev, but then they were beaten back by Ukrainian forces with Lockheed brand javelins and all these kinds of things. Um, I heard a counter narrative to that, or I read a counter narrative to that, which was that that was mostly a feint in order to divide the Ukrainian military while the Russians took their real prize, which was the land between, I guess, Donetsk and Crimea there, including the city of Mariupol, in order to create their so-called land bridge in the south. But you're not buying that at all. Do I read you right? Well, I mean, the facts don't support that supposition, Scott. The reality is that we now have captured Russian documents that show us that they were, in fact, intent upon taking Kiev. And they thought that they would be able to get there in less than 72 hours. So it, so I think that, that the truth is And this, again, separates the Russian war from U.S. practices in the past, is that they attacked along an entire front line from Crimea all the way in the south through the east and up to the north, that they encircled the entire eastern periphery of Ukraine. And they didn't use air power in the way that the United States might use air power, which is to soften up and destroy infrastructure as uh, a prelude to the ground operation. Why not? All of it happened at the same time. All of it. Yeah. The missile war, the air war, the ground war, it all took place at the same time. And I think that, in fact, Putin was trying to take uh, Kiev and and take the land of the Donbass. Now that they have been had to revisit what their objectives are by with their withdrawal in the north. Now they're saying they're intent upon taking Donbass. And, and, and most recently, the articulation of military commanders on the ground who have been quoted in the Russian press are that they are intent upon taking not just Donbass, that's the two provinces of Luhansk and, and Donetsk, but at the same time that they want to take 
all of southern Ukraine in order to provide a land bridge from Russia to Transnistria, mm. which is a rebel region of Moldova that's on the other side of Ukraine. So they're 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 changing their objectives sort of on the fly, if you will. But the reality is that they are not even able to just take the territory that they intended to take in Donbass. And while they are doing a little bit better uh, further west in, in southern Ukraine, they did not manage to get to Mykolaiv. They did not manage to ever get close to Odessa. And so the Russians are just not doing very well. And though they will probably revise their objectives once again to fit with whatever it is that they are able to do, I think by May 9th, which is the big date, by Victory Day in Russia, the reality will be that Putin will find some way to declare victory, to say that they have achieved their objectives. Of course, now those objectives will have been revised three or four times. Right. And, and to sort of accept a ceasefire and uh, in order to be able to declare victory, that that's the key date that we should now be watching. Hmm. I wanted to follow up on one of your points earlier there about why they didn't deploy heavy air power first, the way that both Bushes did in their Iraq wars. Because they suck. I mean, that's the reality, Scott. The Russian Air Force is an adjunct of the Russian army. It's not an independent arm. It doesn't have strategic objectives in the way that we think about them when we think about American targeting deep into Iraq or deep into Afghanistan. Uh, the Russians have barely been able to uh, undertake very many strikes outside of the battlefield. And though the use of air power in support of Russian ground forces has been intent, uh, intense. Uh, there was no efforts on the part of Russia to destroy the electrical grid, to destroy the communications fabric. The internet is still working in Ukraine to destroy the roads and bridges. The truth of the matter is that there was just no strategic campaign on the part of Russia. So if we look at it and mirror image the US and we say, oh my God, they didn't do these strategic things, and so therefore uh, they failed, we have to stop mirror imaging the Russians and say, oh, in the context of what they believe, mm -hmm. which is that this is a true land war and not an air power dominant war as we've seen in the Middle East, then we can see the war in a different way and not just mirror image the US experience, but actually realize that Russia is fundamentally a ground power it's a land power, and the United States is a naval and air power, and they're just different countries. Mm -hmm. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Green Mill Supercritical is the award-winning leader in cannabis oil extraction. Their machines are absolute top of the line. They simply work better and accomplish more for less than any competitor in the world. We are talking anywhere from a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the base model and up. So this is for serious business people here. But the price, as they say, will be worth it. 
Green Mill supercritical customers' investments pay for themselves oftentimes in just weeks. Simple enough for almost any operator. Deep enough for master technicians. Their new novel techniques for inline real-time winterization are leaving their competitors in the key. That's GreenMillSuperCritical.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Talking with Bill Arkin from Newsweek about the war in Ukraine. Uh, one more mirror image here. Uh, what do you think about the idea that Putin's pearls told him that they're going to greet us with flowers and candy in the east of the country? Uh, they'll see us as protectors and welcome us and we'll just roll right in no problem. Well, I do think that that comparison is apt, Scott. The truth of the matter is that the that the Russians completely uh, misread the Ukrainians. I think before we guffaw too much about the error of their intelligence, we should also recognize that U.S. intelligence didn't have a clue as to what was actually going to transpire. Yes, they could count the Russian troops and the Russian tanks that were building up in Belarus and in uh, the western part of Russia that were preparing to engage in Ukraine. But U.S. intelligence did not have any particular insights as to what Russian strategy would be, as to how difficult the Russians would have. And you know what? A shot had barely been fired in this Ukraine war, Scott, before U.S. generals and U.S. Defense Department spokespeople and uh, pro-military observers were saying, oh, my God, we need to increase defense spending. We need to spend even more. We need to do even more. And that is the dominant narrative now in Washington and in NATO, when the truth of the matter is that what this war really teaches us is that the Russians are a paper tiger that they're not really a threat to NATO. They can barely even maintain their their themselves in Ukraine. And so, in fact, it isn't the case that we need to increase defense spending. It's more of a case that we need to revisit the very question of the Russian threat. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, there's so much more to talk about here, Bill, in so little time. But it's interesting, you know, the way that you portray the balance on the scales here in the war and so I wonder how all that affects the question of diplomacy here, because it, it seemed like if there was going to be a real deal, it would be some kind of recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and the quote unquote, you know, ironical uh, so-called independence of the uh, Donbass there and neutrality for Ukraine and a forswearing of them eventually joining NATO. But if the Russians are getting beaten back as badly as you say, then that means the Americans and the Ukrainians then feel that much less incentive to deal along those lines, even though I think quite clearly Putin's not going to settle for less than that. So it seems like maybe that's why there's no diplomacy going on, is because nobody wants to give in from the position that they're in right now. Well, I, I, it's unfortunate that there's no diplomacy, but I think there's a more of a systemic problem uh, when the United States and NATO lined up so uh, in, in such unity against Russia, 
uh, and even countries like Sweden and Finland and Switzerland, uh, you know, joined the sanctions regimes and have supported Ukraine with arms and assistance. The truth of the matter is, is what we lost is we lost a third party. We lost an objective third party that could go in there and knock heads together and say, you guys have got to come to some conclusion because we're just now fighting in a stalemate over the bodies of dead Ukrainians and more Ukrainian civilians are going to die when Ukraine, you have no prospect of defeating Russia and Russia, you have no prospect of defeating Ukraine. So let's first cease fire and then second begin the, the, the tough negotiations that are going to either create some kind of demilitarized zone between these two combatants. And we have examples of that, for instance, in, 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 on the Korean Peninsula. Or let's uh, come to some conclusion in which Ukraine makes the concession that it won't join NATO and will become neutral and Russia in exchange uh, seeds this territory here or there. It's not the end, like it won't be a, a, a peace treaty, it'll be an armistice of some sort. That to me is the logical outcome and it's the one that I thought was happening a couple of weeks ago when everything was sort of upset by the calls of genocide and war crimes and blah, blah, blah. And that the end result of that was to halt negotiations. I mean, Macron, the French president, has said explicitly that he uh, had a dialogue going on with Putin and it all ended after the Bucha uh, massacres were uncovered. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, we're missing that element. The United States is not a third party. Uh, the UN is toothless, as we know. And so there isn't really somebody who's going to help to get this negotiations underway. And though I applaud that the Biden administration is supporting Ukraine, the truth of the matter is that by sending uh, arms to Ukraine, as everyone around that uh, that country is doing now, uh, we're prolonging the war rather than using uh, our diplomatic tools to try to find some way to stop the fighting and stop the killing. Yeah. Now, Bill, I know this would sound crazy and you'd scold me for it, but I read it in the Washington Post on April the 5th. They said some in NATO prefer to see the war continue, to see the Ukrainians continue fighting and dying, they said fighting and dying, and did not want to see the war end too early. And I wonder how much of that thinking do you think is behind, well, our State Department's refusal. It's been 65 days since Blinken met with Sergei Lavrov here. Uh, I don't credit anybody with having a secret test tube in the basement in which they are diabolically making a brew of Ukraine versus Russia. But they are right in one regard, Scott, and this is really the most important thing that people should take away. The war in Ukraine has challenged the West in so many ways, not just in terms of recognizing Russia's propensity towards war and invasion, but also in the sense of it's a kind of a crisis of identity for NATO and the Western alliance. And I, I feel at this point 
that there is this sense that we're going to fight on for weeks or months and that somehow this is going to uh, achieve uh, Ukrainian victory over the Russians. I just don't see on the ground how that's going to actually take place. And I am fearful to some degree that uh, if the Russians really feel like their backs are up against the wall, that their escalation, that they might escalate uh, chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, or escalate in other ways. And and so, uh, I don't agree that anyone intended it to be this way. But the truth is that this is how it has developed. Whether you think that there was intent behind it or not, this is how it has developed. We are fighting to the last Ukrainian death. And that is just not a good position for the United States to be in. And I think that the absence of diplomacy, it's not just the American responsibility. There are other countries as well that are in a good position to be the intermediaries like the French. Uh, But the absence of a diplomatic effort that equals the war effort, it sort of belies the entire last two decades of American foreign policy, which was, oh, yeah, we think that diplomacy is just as important as the military is. They're equal partners. And yet here we are uh, two months into a war. And basically, it's all about the military and diplomacy with the Russians doesn't even exist. Yeah. All right. Now, you mentioned about how the uh, use of the term genocide here, sabotage, diplomacy, and you have an important story about Buka or Buka or however you pronounce it here, and the massacre there, where you're talking to some people from DIA and other places too, I guess. So I was wondering if you could clear up what happened there, whether that amounts to genocide or not, who did it, and that kind of thing. The truth of the matter is that I've been focused in all of my reporting since this war began on what actually is happening on the ground. And though I look at Bucha and say to myself, this was a tragedy because this war was literally taking place inside this village. The truth of the matter is that 400 civilians died and 400 civilians uh, equals uh, 0.01% of the population of Bucha. To to call it genocide is to sort of do genocide a disservice. Genocide would mean that the Russians were intent on destroying the Ukrainian people, and yet they've shown no propensity towards, for instance, attacking inside the urban area of Kiev during this entire conflict or using their air force in a strategic way to actually achieve any kind of genocide. I think the Russians could have done a lot more damage than they actually did. But my God, if we say that somehow we're being pro-Russian when just the facts on the ground support that. And so do I think that there have been war crimes in Ukraine? Absolutely. But war crimes come down to what an individual does, whether that individual is actually committing the war crime or the individual is commanding that troops go out there and intentionally attack civilians or intentionally destroy civil infrastructure. So do I think there have been war crimes? Yes. Do I think that there have been tragic places that have been in the middle of this war? Yes, absolutely. And we still don't know how many people actually died in Kharkiv or Mariupol, where they're saying as many as 20,000 civilians died. I mean, we just don't know the answer right now. But to call it genocide and to call it all just one big giant war crime 
is kind of uh, taking away our reasoning faculty and taking away our ability to stop the war. And so I can see on the part of the United States why it uses that rhetoric, why it gets to that place. But if we are so blinded that we cannot see Russia as being a rational actor, that we just see it as being like the evil Putin, then we are not able to find a solution to the war short of watching the Ukrainians die while we do nothing except put more arms in the hands of the Ukrainians so that more Ukrainians die. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, last topic here, the question of nuclear weapons. And you have this story talking about the possibility of Russia breaking out tactical nuclear weapons in this war. Is that a real concern, William Arkin? It is a real concern, Scott, because we're getting to the place where Putin might be threatened, where the state, you know, the Putin state might be threatened. And in fact, that is Russian doctrine. You know, if the state is threatened, then that is the cause for escalation to the use of nuclear weapons. So I take it seriously, and U.S. intelligence takes it seriously. They're closely watching uh, every Russian nuclear move. And this week especially, we saw a test of a, a, of a new Russian ICBM, a long-range missile. And in the context of that test, even the Russians said, we hope that NATO will notice what we're doing. So it wasn't an explicit nuclear threat, but the Russians are definitely, you know, from the first night of the war, they have been making nuclear threats that if NATO intervenes on the ground, that they will escalate, blah, blah, blah. But here is the truth. It seems at this point that we have some power over this. We, we, we play a role. What we do in this war now plays a role. And Russian forces, I think, rather than like going on the offensive and, and, and parading through Ukraine in the largest tank battle since World War II and all the narrative that you're reading in the mainstream media, the Russians are really having a difficult time advancing again and the truth is that the Russians may find themselves in a situation in the not too near future where their only option is to escalate. Now, you say, well, you know, we shouldn't help the Russians in any way. But the truth is we should help the Russians. We should help the Russians to stop fighting, to find the way to stop fighting. If our priority is peace and if our priority is protecting the civilian population, which is the very basis of yelling genocide and war crimes, right. then we need to find a way in which we can give Putin an out. Absolutely. And so instead, our military only strategy at this point, which is not giving Putin an out, is just basically relegating Ukraine to being our proxy battlefield against the Russians forever. Yep. All right, you guys, that is William M. Arkin. He's at Newsweek. You're cheating yourself if you're not reading every single thing he writes there. His most recent book is The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. Thanks, Bill. Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. And that's Anti-War Radio for this morning. You can find the full interview archive at scotthorton.org and youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. I'm here every Sunday morning from 830 to 9 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you all next week.